0: This is Meg Gardner, and you're listening to Writer Types.
2: Welcome to Writer Types. I'm your host, Eric Bietner, and my apologies for the delay on this one, but I was away on vacation for a week, so I don't know, I really don't feel that bad at all making you wait. But To make it up for you, I bring you the end-of-summer spectacular with no fewer than five, that's right, five authors for you. You might have to break this one up into multiple listens because I I hope for your sake that your commute is shorter than mine and you cannot fit it all in one sitting. But let's waste no time and get to my first interview with Matthew Fitzsimmons. Matthew is the author of the Gibson Vaughn series and he's here with his new book Constance, a standalone that takes a turn away from his series work. This one is a murder mystery with a twist. In a near future where human cloning is common, a clone must try to solve the murder of her original body. It's inventive and thrilling and you are gonna love it. Matthew and I talked about this wild new direction for him. Matthew Fitzsimmons, welcome back to the show, and uh, congratulations. Just this morning, we find a rave review in the New York Times for your new novel, Constance. Congratulations.
3: Thank you. That's a, uh, it's hard. It, it's, it's still a little bit hard to wrap my, my mind around. Uh, I walked over to Union Station so I could buy a physical copy. so I could actually hold the newspaper, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, it, I'm really excited for the book.
2: Well, so this one is a standalone. You've stepped away for the moment, at least, from your Gibson Vaughn series and uh, f- taken a pretty big swing with Constance. <laughs> this book is is wild. And I have a whole head full of different versions of, you know, where did this story come from kind of questions, but I'm, yeah. I'm not going to torture you with those. <laughs> Let, let's start with this. I mean, cloning is essential to, to this book and, and this yeah. this technology that we're on the cusp of existing now but uh, you take it that step further so i'm assuming that you you wanted to get the science behind it right and that involved uh, a lot of research and you you actually went out and talked to some experts in this field yeah I didn't talk to
3: experts in human cloning because there obviously there are no experts in human cloning. Although, but you know, but the 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 first thing that was sort of interesting because it's only sort of set twenty years in the future, and I wanted to sort of wanted to explore a little bit like the legal and the, the the cultural and social implications of it. So I wanted to look at what the landscape is today. And the first thing that I discovered that sort of interested and surprised me was just that there are no laws against there are no federal laws against human cloning. Because we do human cloning every day. In terms of stem cell research, we clone human cells. So that, you know, the, 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 the state's rights issue that's in the book comes from that fact that we already are doing human cloning. The, the gentleman's agreement or whatever you want to call it is that we just won't make a person. You know, but we certainly could if we wanted to. There's nothing really preventing us at this point from doing it. You know, it's more of a bioethical issue than it is a legal issue at this stage of the game. But I did, I wound up talking to some, uh, some neuropsychologists at Johns Hopkins and just tried to think, you know, you know a thousand years ago, we framed it in terms like where does the soul reside and like where does yeah. the mind reside? And we've always sort of placed it very much in our head. Like that's where our head is. And, you know, they're more and more thinking about like consciousness and the mind is existing in the body and not just in the head. And they tell you, know, you see it in, in things where they say that where gut health improves in memory and huh. that, that that the relationship between the body and the mind is not so simple as y- y- your consciousness is in your head and it tells the body what to do. It's much more of a, a co-equal relationship because the mind extends through the nerves, through... The central nervous system down the spine. So really, it's the whole organism working in concert that is consciousness.
2: And, and then you had to tell these experts uh, that there were you're so interested in their work. You say yeah, and I'm going to apply this to a murder mystery.
3: <laughs> well, that's the fun thing about it is it's like it's 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 like when you tell people you're doing this and they're like, hey, can I buy you a drink and can I pick your brain? People are like yeah, like it's it's a good the best calling card in the world because. You know, most of the time, these incredibly smart, much smarter people than I am are are you know are working and doing it. And they're, they're working with other people to do it. And no one's all that excited to hear about what you do. So to have someone like me come along, and be like, I am super excited to hear about the neuropsychology behind the mind-body <laughs> connection. And they're like, yes, buy me a drink. And here we go. <laughs>
2: Is there any fear going in when you make such a large pivot from your Gibson Vaughn series to this, to this oh, new yeah. thing?
3: I've been a bundle of nerves for like the <laughs> past, well, the past, you know, two years, I mean, as you, you know, particularly the last 30 days as we sort of like lead up to the launch. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's like once you get a lane assigned to you, Mm-hmm. You write this. You write legal thrill. It's complex on a number of levels to step outside of that. And even though I, I would I would argue to someone that really what I've written is a you know a very traditional detective murder mystery. I you have this dream of like oh right, I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to straddle two lanes. Yeah. I'd love for the people who read my books in the past to come along, and I'm hoping that a science fiction audience will go, all right, I'll read a, a a murder mystery thriller, but what if they don't? What if you yeah. throw the party and everyone's like, yeah, that's not really my jam.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and after five books in the Gibson Vaughn series, do, I mean, do you get so used to that one voice that it becomes hard to break out of that? Or were you itching to try something I was
3: itching to try something new and it was, <laughs>
2: and it's tough. I mean, yeah, you sort of get into
3: a, a rhythm with a character and, and you know, I've been writing his voice for five books predominantly. And so, yeah, it took a little bit of, you know, I experimented with maybe writing it in first person. The Gibson Vaughn books are in third person. So I, yeah. I thought about maybe going first person, but that didn't feel like the right fit you know, there was a lot of sort of like mechanical stuff I was trying to do to just like I'm going to differentiate this from that. It felt liberating, as much as I loved that series and liked writing it. It did feel it was it was I was ready for a break for something new, yeah, for sure. sure.
2: Was there any part of writing something that is a little bit unreal, that, that's that's detached from our current reality? Was there something appealing, looking around at the reality that we're living in now, and thinking, "All right, I I want to get away from this. I, I need to escape the, the real world a little bit."
3: It was, although you know, you know, one of the things I like about spec fiction is that you know the book is only set in 2040, so. A lot, of, a lot of the way that cloning and clones are treated and reacted to in the book you know, is definitely—I mean—that I think that is that you can sort of mirror and reflect, you know, your own reality. I mean, I think it's what Clockwork Orange did so well, what hmm. Handmaid's Tale does. I mean, not that I'm yeah. placing myself in that category, but you know, those sorts of books that are writing about in the future or, or a near alternate reality, but are so clearly speaking to and an in dialogue with the reality that the, that the author sees isn't it. For yeah, no, if,
2: everything, everything is, uh, is frighteningly plausible that, that happens. It's it could, because like you say, it's not that detached from where we are now away from, and, and like you say, if it's, if this technology technically is possible now, at least the cloning part of it, maybe not the implant part of it, but right. it grounds it to in in a reality that we can all relate to, while at the same time being a little bit unreal. That's a that's that's a tricky balancing act.
3: It is, and 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 I, I, it's going to be up to readers to decide whether or not, like I, I, I balance, or whether I not <laughs> but.
2: Well, I'm always intrigued by uh, usually the, the throwaway lines in an author's bio, and uh, I, I did not realize f- from yours that uh, you, you are a collector of classic soul LPs. And uh, this is a subject that I can geek out all day on. So let, let's let's dive into this. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm down. So g- give me uh, who's who's uh, maybe some of your favorite unheralded uh, singers from the, the from the soul era.
3: I mean, I don't know that I'm like an unheralded guy. Like I, I'm a huge fan of Donny Hathaway. Yep. Who,
2: uh, the greatest Christmas song ever. Let's acknowledge it.
3: Yep. Yep. Although I'm a big fan of the Drifters White Christmas. I love that version of White Christmas. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of doo drop in it. What, what it's been for me for the last few years is digging deeper in the catalogs of people that I, you know, that you sort of know there, yes. you know, I've been I've been uh, deep down in the Isley Brothers lately. Mm. I think three plus three played almost continually all summer long. Getting past that, the greatest hits.
2: Yes.
0: And then
3: there's just there's so much music in the 60s and 70s. You know, I grew up and I sort of got this very narrow band of it. You know, I was like growing up in the 80s, so I was listening to the Replacements and The Descendants and and Elvis Costello and the Bad Brains, which were a DC band. And, nope. you know, I was listening to that on the one hand, and on the other hand, you're sort of getting the the music of the previous generation. You get that surface level of the Doors and the Who and the, the Beatles, and, the, and then oftentimes you just sort of stop. Yeah. And it takes, it, it sort of takes this like a, no, I'm going to dig past that. You know, I'm going to dig past Aretha Franklin Gold. Yes. And, and listen to Lady Soul start to finish. I mean, there's one that her catalog is so rich you could spend oh, years yes. just just trying to listen to everything Aretha Franklin
2: did. Her song uh, "A Change," I, I think, is is one of my probably my favorite Aretha Franklin song, and one that nobody ever talks about. And it's yeah, it's true. You listen to that, and you're like, why why wasn't this one just as big as Respect? And sometimes it just depends, like what you know, what made it onto the Big Chill soundtrack, and then that's that becomes well, yeah. the canon, you know.
3: <laughs> the, the Big Chill soundtrack. I mean, that was. I mean, it's so funny that, you know, the I, I'm I'm jealous almost of kids now. It's interesting. I'm jealous and I'm sad for them both at the same time. Uh-huh. <laughs> like when I was a kid, when I was in high school, if someone didn't hand you, if you didn't have a good radio station, yeah, or someone handed you a mixtape, you could miss. Like, there were a couple of artists I got to college. People were like, well, this person is, this band has been great through And I'd never heard of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: and I listened to a lot of music. So, but someone had not physically handed it to me, or I hadn't been in a record store and heard it, or I had you know, I, I tried to explain to someone, one of my students once, that you'd play this game where you're like, oh, what was the name of the actor who was the guy in Ghostbusters? Mm-hmm. And you would just ask everyone, and you'd spend weeks. Yeah. and then someone would be like oh that's and then' say the name and but thank you I've been trying to find because there was no internet right, there's right no there's there was no mechanism to get that answer so kids so kids now the kids now God listen to me you know, like, have this unbelievable resource like they hear a song by uh, XTC they can go to the XTC Wikipedia page and know everything that they want to know right. <laughs> in five minutes. But the other, but the interesting thing is that they don't actually listen to albums. Yeah. Like they listen to songs.
2: Yeah. My, my daughter just requested, she now wants a CD player in her room. She wants to own all of Taylor Swift's full albums. Right. Just, Cause she admit like she's tired of going to her Spotify playlist and just hearing the same hits and then three or four songs yeah yeah, like the the ones that she's the albums that she's dug into like she listens to those whole albums top to finish and it's it is refreshing to see like yeah there's something that's so when, when an artist does create an album that's great top to bottom which we admit is is rare but oh my god those things stay with you for your whole life
3: oh yeah absolutely And you listen to it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times.
2: Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, people will return to *Constance*, your latest novel, again and again and again. (laughs) That was a beautiful
3: segue. That was
2: fantastic. That was lovely. (laughs) I'm professional. (laughs) Well, congratulations on on the new book, uh, Matt. And and I think this is uh, it's an it's an interesting pivot, but I think it's not too far removed from your other books and and your fans will come along for the ride and they will be rewarded richly for it. So congratulations.
3: I appreciate it. I I hope you are right. I'm gonna write that down and read it as my daily affirmation.
2: (laughs) Well, just read that New York Times review. I think that'll probably be better. (laughs) I still haven't read the New York Times review. I know
3: it's there and I'm aware of it, but I have not yet worked up and I was told that it was good, but I have actually not worked up the uh, the, the, the moral certitude to actually sit down and read it. (laughs)
2: Next up is Elizabeth Mariafi, author of The Retreat. This slow burn thriller takes place at a remote artist colony in the mountains during wintertime. An avalanche traps the characters in their isolated setting and it doesn't take long for a body to show up. I spoke with Elizabeth from her home on the far east coast of Newfoundland in Canada. Elizabeth, I, I was first interested uh, in, in this book because I have a uh, as yet unsold manuscript called Retreat. Ah. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> but
2: you, you will be happy to know that uh, I was not stalking your hard drive. It, it is a completely different book, so uh, <laughs> we're we're good on that. <laughs> Uh, but i've i have spoken to authors from canada before but you are, are at the very edge you are halfway in the atlantic ocean for, for pete's sake
1: yes I, correct com-
2: coming from toronto do you do you like the isolation of living out there in newfoundland
1: yeah i've been here for 9 years i grew up in toronto sort of lived a, a pretty city existence. So if you look on the map, Newfoundland always looks like it's sort of like right next to Canada. And that is incorrect. It is, <laughs> as you say, pretty much in the middle of the North Atlantic. Um, it's a 16 hour ferry from uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia to St. John's. Wow. But it's uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, the pandemic has been so interesting because for the first, you know, whatever, seven or seven and a half years I lived here, Uh, I probably flew off the island like three, four times a year. And now I haven't uh, left since November 2019. And it's been like exceptionally grounding. Like all of a sudden I feel (laughs) really like uh, where I am. But um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. We've just come through. Uh, whale season and um, oh, wow. actually we were at a, at a writers festival in woody point newfoundland on the west coast of newfoundland and a la- lot my husband's a poet so he was reading i was reading and the the last night we were there we were sitting out on a wharf having a beer enjoying dinner and there was tuna lunch feeding <laughs> right in front of us Whoa. so it's uh, <laughs> a lovely place to live as far as i'm concerned yes yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, I it I was curious because isolation also obviously plays a big part in the retreat. It's interesting because you you know Maeve has this this backstory. You know she comes from this abusive relationship, and then she's she goes to this uh, you know isolated retreat to to try to sort of restart her life and and start this new business. But I'm wondering if you felt like we learned more about her or or something different about her by isolating her and the other characters in this place. And then obviously putting them through the, the extreme isolation of being trapped in an avalanche.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Her story obviously would have been a lot different if we were telling her story back in, in the real world, so to, so mm-hmm. to speak. So what, what sort of interesting insights do you think you were able to pull out of her by isolating her in this way?
1: Yeah, I mean, arts residencies in general are kind of crazy <laughs> for that reason, <laughs> right? So you take people from their regular life and put them, you know, usually in a fairly isolated spot where all, all they have to do and think about is the immense pressure of their own ambition. <laughs> 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 Truly, right? And yeah. that's that's very much what's happening here. Uh, not only that, but Maeve is there sort of like between sessions, right? Like, so yeah. we get the sense that this might be um, a more vibrant crowded place perhaps if you came in September or May but when you're there sort of uh, as she is in November there's really only a handful of self-directed artists working on site um, which I think sort of ups that uh, that feeling of stakes so for Maeve she's only there for two weeks uh, and she's really uh, trying to redirect her career from performance to to uh, starting her own dance company so not only are we just doing that sort of stage one isolation of now you're going to be here feeling the, as I said, the pressure of your own ambition and the, yeah. the weird sort of competition that I think uh, competition and also a weird forced camaraderie. Like all these mm-hmm. things really exist if you go to one of these residencies and then the weather comes in and uh-huh. then the avalanche comes in and, and traps this handful of people and cuts them off from everything else. But for me, you know, it's funny because you mentioned living where I do, we get a lot of precipitation here and in the winter, that'll be snow, but it tends to hover around uh, zero degrees Celsius. So that means we'll get a big dump of snow and then it'll all melt. However, uh, I have become used to Uh, About twice every winter, we get a forecast where I'm like, all right, let's bring the snow shovels inside because in the morning I'm going to have to go out the back sliding patio door, down (laughs) through the backyard, hop the fence, walk around to the front of the house and shovel my way into the front door, which would not be openable otherwise. So, you know, I thought I knew something about snow. (laughs) And then right before the pandemic, January 2020, in St. John's, we had a storm of the century uh, that was called Snowmageddon. And I had already (laughs) written the first draft of the retreat. I was already working on it with my two editors. um, (laughs) And all of a sudden, uh, and it was like, we got over a meter of snow in 24 hours. Uh, The city had to call a state of emergency. The city was shut down for seven days. Like you weren't allowed to drive on the roads. So I got to live out, got to. Uh, had to live out in real time this crazy snow emergency where uh, even in a place with a tremendous amount of infrastructure, we were not prepared. And I think that that is so much a part of what creates the initial reaction in the characters in the retreat that yeah. uh, the avalanche happens, this like this big snowfall in the avalanche. And in a way we almost romanticize these things. Oh, now we're all gonna sit around the fire and everything. Yeah. Um, but in fact we are so accustomed to modern convenience that like they're <sighs> really not prepared, right?
2: The way you speak about these uh, artist retreats, it sounds like you you have some experience uh, with with these sorts of places.
1: (laughs) I really did go to uh, a retreat in the Rocky Mountains in Canada in Banff, uh, Alberta. There's a quite a big one called the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. So my fictional version, which is called the Highwater Centre for the Arts, uh, would be smaller. Banff is like big, big campus. But uh, yes, it absolutely informed my experience. I went on a two-week, I was there with a two-week program with other writers. And um, what I remember is we all arrived on Sunday night and there is indeed this sort of like camaraderie oh we're all here to create things and we're gonna have a lot of drinks and and then about wednesday morning everyone gets up and goes oh my god there's 10 days left and i'm supposed to be making something (laughs) it's like you can hear all the doors slamming everyone just goes into the room i did think about that a lot but there was a number of experiences i had at banff that did go into the book uh, there's a scene in the book where people are hiking through the woods and they find themselves rather suddenly in the middle of an elk herd in the middle of the rutting season uh that did happen to me wow. <laughs> uh, like we certainly got more warnings about the elk than we did about bears for instance that oh, yeah. you really don't want to get in between uh, a male elk and any female, and yeah, and just the that sort of real I think sense of isolation and the dream that's in the novel. In the in the novel, if you remember, there's a, a sort of a mythology about that you go to these mountains and and people mm-hmm. have this dream of a bear, uh, sort of a sleep paralysis dream, a, a, a bear that you know comes into the room and you can't fight it and it holds you down. Uh, yeah. And people there, you know, in, or who visit Banff really do have that dream. I. Wow did not have the dream uh-huh. when I was there. And I went back in 2018 for a couple of days because I happened to be in Calgary. And I thought, well, I'll go back up to Banff and do a bit of research. And I was like, I'm going to trigger this dream. Right. So I, <laughs> I, I slept every night with my, like my curtains wide open. So you, you know, the, the tree branches are right against your window. And what I read as my relaxing bedtime reading was a memoir about a hiker in Alaska, uh, who was, uh, stalked for days by a grizzly bear. And, um, <laughs> I thought for sure, for sure, I'm going to have this terrible dream, but sadly, I slept extremely peacefully in the uh, and never got it. to have the dream myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I, you, the way you, uh, you also write about uh, dance and, and Maeve's experience with uh, with her her own movement and the sort of the, the world that she lives in makes me also think that you probably have some dance experience in your background.
1: Okay, so here is where we part ways. I have no dance experience really. None. I'm in fact quite clutzy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm I'm lucky in that I have a couple of friends who do have a dance background. So that was really it's the best kind of research when you can just send a friend a text where you're like, Yeah, watch this video. Tell me if you are dancing this, what are you thinking <laughs> while you're doing it?
2: <laughs> wow. Well, there's also there's quite a strong uh, undercurrent of distrust in this book that that starts to come out the longer these people are are forced to to be together. I, I always wonder, you know, for writers of suspense, we, we always come off as maybe a little cynical, a little pessimistic. I mean, do, do you think it's uh, it's human nature that if we're all forced into uh, this cauldron together, eventually we're going to turn on each other? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think Maeve arrives and uh, fairly earnestly, and then she figures out pretty quickly that these people have actually, there's only a handful of them, but they've all been there for some time and have had enough time together to sort of create their own little web. And I think there are people who are more trustworthy, you know, at the retreat. She makes this uh, fast friendship with Anna, who's an experimental filmmaker. But yeah, I mean, I think you have a small group of people who were all there with one set of expectations who are now thrown into another uh, situation altogether and they all have their own backgrounds, you know? So we have this groundskeeper who has a military background, who is really used to being in control. You know, there's, and there's more than one person (laughs) there I think who (laughs) who likes control. So, um, and I think for me as a writer, I'm always really interested in power, right? Who has it? Who wants it? This is, to me, the most interesting question.
2: Well, it, it's uh, it certainly is. A, it's a fascinating read uh, in in these uh, times where we're all isolated in in our own ways. In a strange way it made me feel like, well, things aren't so bad. At least I'm not buried under, uh, you know, three feet of snow. <laughs> That's
1: so. It's uh, it's so funny that I began this book. I started writing it, you know, in, in 2019. And somehow ended up writing this weird book that is about people all trapped together, <laughs> like yeah. a small group of people and they can't see other people. <laughs> and, and now I'm writing a book. And I was complaining to a friend recently. I said, oh my God, there's so many characters. It's off the rails. I can't, like, I just keep adding people. And she was like, <laughs> Do you think this is like your subconscious response to the pandemic? You're like, more people, more people.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I see uh, the, the note cards behind you there. But is, is that, is that, are, are you plotting out there? Is yeah, that what just, I see? Just it?
1: me trying to like keep a handle on things in whatever way I can.
2: <laughs> I am always thrilled when Rachel Housel Hall stops by. Her newest thriller, These Toxic Things, is burning up the charts. In the book, Mickey curates digital memory books for people, and her latest client has a collection that takes Mickey down a dark road and into the path of a killer. As much success as she's had in the past, this one is bringing a whole new readership to Rachel and her inventive and twisty stories. Look, it is one of my favorite return guests. It's Rachel Housel-Hall.
0: Hey, Welcome hey, back hey, to hey. writer.
2: I, I just saying that I realize your your name would sound great uh, being said by Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> would not it? It's a Rachel Howzell. Oh, Oprah say my name.
0: <laughs>
2: do, you, do you think it would fit right into Oprah's entourage? It sure, yes it would. Yes it would,
0: Oprah. It would totally fit. It would. Totally fit. <laughs> I see it.
2: Well, I, I know you're uh, you are in the thick of uh, publicity season for the new book, these toxic yes. things. So yes, uh, yes. I've I, I'll throw you the option if you want to talk about anything besides the book, I've, no, I'm this open.
0: Is, this is only my third time, my third interview, even talking about the book. The oh, first, okay. the second one just thirty minutes ago. So yeah, I I am getting my patter down. So all right,
2: you're not burned no. out yet. That's good. No,
0: not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still excited.
2: Uh, Well, I want to say bravo to Thomas and Mercer for an unusual thing because they have made a a hardcover that looks good naked. And I appreciate this because you you take the jacket off. This is still an attractive book to have on your shelf.
0: I didn't know. You know, I saw someone on Instagram and they they'd taken the jacket off. And I'm like, I wonder whose book that is. And (laughs) then I realized it's mine. It's like, ah, how beautiful is that?
2: Since we last spoke, you have been a very prolific of late. I feel like it now it, it, it hasn't been that long time-wise since we spoke, but now I think three books have come and gone.
0: Probably, yeah. Yeah, we, like
2: right as I was closing the cover uh, on and now she's gone, you announced these toxic things, and I felt like I, they all fall down, had <laughs> well, just come out. Yeah. <laughs> what, well, it was, was there anything that brought on this uh, flurry of activity for you?
0: Well, you know, as, as, as a writer, we always have these ideas bubbling and, you know, all those books behind you, you've read them and it's like, oh, I like that trick. Oh, I like that trick. And you don't know <laughs> how you're going to incorporate that trick, but you know that you want to do that thing and there's something else that you want to talk about. So I think part of it is being 51 and, you know, all those family secrets are starting to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's like, what the heck? What? <laughs> and you're, you're upset by it. You're fascinated by it. You kind of knew, but didn't. And during the pandemic, we've all had those moments where we're going through closets mm-hmm. and looking at things and knowing that there's now a story that you didn't know connected to this object. You know, it's it's weird. It's upsetting. And I wrote this during the pandemic. So the the, the wanting to do this trick I saw in a book back in like 2003 or something like that, combined with being older and being a mom and having my family secrets, all those things coming out, it all kind of came together into this book. And at this point of my career, it's like, I know this is a little kind of twisty and offbeat with the illustrations inside and the catalog, Mm -hmm. but I want to do it. And if it doesn't, you know, part of it, I, I'm scared in some ways because mm. it is, there There are signature me things there, but the, you know, this is my first time writing a very young character. Mm-hmm. I'm usually writing women my age with my experience were moms or wanted to be married, you know, women who have lived. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had to turn to my nieces and to my daughter to tell me about what the the Utes do, you know, <laughs> down to what they drink. The Utes don't drink Jack Daniels' down-home punch like we used to see back in the day. <laughs> Mickey's hard lemonade and all that stuff. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, the main character you speak of, Mickey Lambert, uh, she creates these uh, digital scrapbooks, which I, I didn't even realize were a thing. Uh, and it, it sounds like when you were just talking, you, you are a collector of little mementos in your life. Is that something you have been a lifelong thing for you?
1: Yeah.
0: In some ways, like, um, cleaning out my daughter's closet, for instance, and I have her box of stuff from mm-hmm. her first blanket to her baby book. Um, my mom had my baby book and all that, but in her different moves around the city, I don't know where that book went. I remember seeing it and flipping through it, but it's gone now. And I hate that it's gone now. So I try and hold on to some things as long as I can, because I want my daughter to have those things that are associated with with good memories. And so, yeah, I, I am a collector of some things. And we're at an age too, where you think back on some things and you may think of them as positive, but someone else totally... Sees it as, oh, that punk Eric did that thing to me, and he <laughs> took that thing, and you know, memories can be wonderful and they can be toxic. So, I wanted to capture all of that into one space.
2: Yeah, Mickey does uh, uncover some nasty stuff in, in the uh-huh. course of of her work in this book, but you give us a little tease in this opening chapter that that is a truly frightening scene. And it, it, we'll get into sort of a, a little bit of writer weeds here because I'm always fascinated with a, a scene like that that gives you a little tease and then kind of goes away for for a long time but it plants a seed and i mean it it, was there a a real balance of when to drop little tidbits like that how much information to give away because you want to sort of set the hook early but you also don't want to give any spoilers and and did those did that opening scene or did any scenes like that change along the way like during edits
0: and stuff It's one of those, you know, writers, just like magicians, we collect tricks. Yeah. Being, you know, uh, an avid reader of our genre, there were these books that I loved the most. And those books have these weird little prologues where they seem so random, but they're not. And somehow they're going to work themselves into the story. And so I wanted to do that Mm. trick. I also wanted to set up the whole idea that, you know, you, you watch TV and like I watch Amazing Race religiously and I, I, I miss it. And you always say, oh, if it were me, I'd do so and so. I'd do that. Oh, that right. kind of challenge. That's nothing. You have no idea. When you're <laughs> there, you don't know what you're going to do. If you're going to eat that giant ostrich egg, you know, <laughs> in time to go to the next obstacle. Or if you're in a car with a stranger, will you reach for your pepper spray or will you try and open the door and jump out? We don't know who we are until we're in that situation. And I wanted to set that up for Mickey, who, you know, she is a dolphin. She's friendly and curious and vibrant. And, you know, she's been protected in so many ways. And I wanted her to be put in a situation where she doesn't even know she's boiling until it's too late.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I'm certainly hoping that none of the uh, sort of incidences from your own life made it into the book in terms of these mementos and things you may have found out about your own past. I, I hope it was all very different from
0: high hi, value. But we had um, we did have I probably mentioned this before. We you know, had someone who came into our house to steal things while we were asleep in bed. And mm-hmm. I just happened to roam through the house, not knowing that this person was in the den right over there taking our stuff and just how vulnerable and, I mean, it could have gone a different way. And, and it's, again, you know, people talk about things are triggering, that's triggering. I'm triggered all the time. And I use writing to help me work through those triggers. I don't write about things that I'm brave about. You know, I write about (laughs) things that I'm I'm, I'm scared to death of and being in a house with someone who was taking my stuff, who got away, um the sheriffs did come we called 911 they were there with the helicopter in 3 minutes but there's so many families where it went the other way and i think about that all the time and i wonder why wasn't it us and yeah. as a writer of crime you think all the time why wasn't it me or if it was me why did i get away you mm-hmm. know and for mickey this, you know, naive, lovely young woman, she's dancing on what's it the head of a needle or whatever that term is. And she doesn't realize it because, you know, 24 year olds are kind of (laughs) self-obsessed. They feel, they feel invincible in so many ways, especially if they're still living in their parents' universe.
2: Yeah. You mentioned that you're. You, you, this one makes you a little bit worried because it's it's uh, slightly different. But uh, as we speak right now, I mean, these toxic things, number one in women sleuths on Amazon, over 3,300 reviews. You just got a starred review from Publishers Weekly. I, yeah. I don't know that you have a whole lot to worry about with this one, it sounds
0: like. I <laughs> think that's what we do, though, right?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know who we would be if we didn't worry. I think it's a poverty mindset in some ways. I've I've been at this for a very long time now. My first book was published September 11th, 2002. And I've hit obstacles and no contracts and, oh, but your numbers. I've experienced all of it. So I've never really gotten to take both feet off the ground and just kind of fly. Mm-hmm. And even when I'm seeing these numbers, all these things you're talking about, I'm still kind of side-eyeing it like, <laughs> yeah, but when are they going to like wake me up and I'm actually, you know, I've failed or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard to believe when you've been not victimized, but when it hasn't been the best outcomes for you all the time.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. In p- publishing will strip anyone's confidence down to the bone <laughs> faster than almost any oh, other yeah. industry.
0: Well, yeah. And that's why I'm glad I have my day job because it's like, well, thank God that Cedar sinai thinks I know how to write. <laughs> how
2: to write. Well, over all, all of this time and, and all of these books and coming from, you know, you started with the L.A. Norton series and now you've sort of switched and had all these great standalones. I mean, presumably you're reaching a whole new audience and, and some readers that, who have come along for the whole journey by introducing yourself to to a whole new slate of, of readers. I mean, do you think they, you have changed as a writer over that time? Or is it just that the timing was right, that everything lined up and uh, and and now you're the rest of the world is catching up to
0: what you do? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've always been I, I remember my first book where they're like, well, what genre is this? It's that is that. And that was part of the reason why I couldn't land a book contract after my first one, because I'm weird in that way. So I'm glad that publishing is now at a stage where they welcome a voice like mine, which can be sometimes hard to pin down. I don't know how to explain. I love standalone land though. Uh, I like, New ideas and new heroines to follow their lives and to, you know, put them into treacherous situations. I liked doing the Lou Norton series, but some of the stories that I want to tell wouldn't have worked with Lou, who is so smart and so noble and she has her flaws, but she's upstanding. She knows how to do things. And, you know, sometimes you want a woman who's kind of flailing around and wrinkled and... Vexed and all the rest of it, and so I'm liking I'm I'm liking these standalones because there's so many um, atrocities that we get to write about, and I want to get to all of them. I want to try at least.
2: <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, you've you've got the the next phase of your career plotted out then, or and, or maybe it's just, it, it, there there's only one phase and that is follow the ideas where they lead you, right?
0: Yes, because you know. I remember trying to write to an audience and not succeeding at all. And it wasn't until I'm like, you know what, if it doesn't sell, at least I tried and at least I'm happy with that story. And with this book, I, I started it and I knew it was going to be an odd book with the, the heroine being so young and naive and at home and the little vignettes and all the rest of it. But it was honest. You know, I wanted a book that I loved and wanted to see and do all those tricks that I've been meaning to, but I just didn't know how to write that story. But now I know how to write that story. I wanted it published. It, it Like I said, it was rejected by some editors who I thought would have wanted it because they told me they just love my twisty stories, but this was just way too twisty. And so <laughs> I was very happy that this editor, um, Jessica Tribble's like, I get it and I love it. And I want you to have as many readers as possible, which was is wonderful. But again, it's terrifying because now a lot of people are reading it and a lot of people with opinions and who may not necessarily be the readers that I've I'm used to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at this point in my career, it's like, oh, I want to tell these stories. And at 51 when am i going to get to do that i'm going to do it now
2: well the, this is inspiring to me rachel because uh, i think there the, the, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing an author who is uh, satisfied with their own work and 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 their own time in their career so that's that, that's better to me and 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 a a goal to aim for Far more than sales rank numbers and any of that kind of stuff. So although that uh,
0: is important, that's that's really right. very happy when I see that. <laughs> you know, and, that's the, and that's the other weird thing. It's like we're so Gen X. We straddle this whole, you know, s- screw capitalism. But what's that nice uh, pair of vans over there? I want the, you know. it's... <laughs> Screw the establishment, but can you please um, increase my, my advance? Yeah. <laughs> That's who we are. <laughs> true. Very
2: true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know we love a debut author here at Writer Types, and Taylor Moore's debut, Downrange, is the start of what promises to be a really thrilling series starring Garrett Cole, who, like Taylor, is Texas born and bred, and unlike Taylor, thankfully finds himself in a whole heap of trouble that he needs to get out of. Taylor is a former CIA intelligence officer who brings his real-world experiences with the law, espionage, and adventure to the page for this series that really gets off to a great start with Downrange. If you've got the responsibilities of uh, of taking care of kids, you've you got you've got your home life, you've got uh, things to take care of, and now we throw this book tour and and or virtual book tour on on top of that. This this is a whole new world for you of, of book promo for your debut novel, isn't it? Did did anyone prepare you for this?
5: No, not really. Um, that that's one of the things that uh, it's a little bit. Uh, surprising nobody prepares you for you know you know your first children first year of marriage and your first year of writing a book
2: yeah it's 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 always a little strange for me like you get that sensation that you you just you made up a bunch of stuff and you wrote it down and you live in this other world for a while and then you have to sort of talk about it and try to break it down and people ask you questions that you maybe you've
5: never even thought about and like i don't know i just made up a bunch of stuff and put it in a book it's it's the best part and the worst part of writing a book because yeah people ask these questions and some of them are so good and it really makes you think about you know things that you never thought about before but that's also the bad side of it because somebody will ask this question and maybe you just wrote that in because that was just what you felt like doing that day but they really want the backstory behind it and so as a writer you sort of feel obligated uh, you know to, to come up with something good about why it's in there and that's, that's not always the case you know my wife it was the funniest one she um, she asked me she said she you know the, the brother is named Bridger. And she said, I love that name. Where'd you get that? And I said, well, you know, his his dad named him after uh, Jim Bridger, you know, the famous mountain man. And and I said, well, Garrett, you know, is named after Pat Garrett, who shot Billy the Kid. And, and then I realized that's not in the book. That was just in my head. And, and that was you know, <laughs> something that was like a kind of a neat story. But so it was a great question. And I, I thought, man, at some point, I should include that in one of the books, you know, to kind of give their yeah. backstories. But so sometimes you do have a backstory and it doesn't make in. And then sometimes you have no idea why you did it. You just like, saw it on a cereal box or something, and there you go. But, but that's that's how it goes sometimes.
2: Well, okay, you, you have been a, a CIA agent, a, a, a rancher. You've hiked jungles. You've been to Antarctica. I mean, this is an exciting life that, that you have lived. I, I got to know, is... Sitting still to write a book is a pretty sedentary activity. Is is that hard for you to to just stay still and and be out of the the jungles for for that long to
5: write a book? It can be hard. It can be difficult. Uh, you know, I've heard before. I've heard it said before that you have to to be a writer. You have to have an iron butt. And there's a <laughs> lot of truth to that because there's a lot of sitting involved. And and uh, I, I can really. When I'm doing it too long, I can feel it um, sort of taking its toll on my health. You know, I don't feel well. I, I just, you know, get stiff and maybe even a little bit irritable, you know. So so it's important as a writer to get out and do those things. And, you and, know, and right before, you know, we started talking, I was making a list. And that was one of the things I, as I start working on book three, you know, uh, book two has already turned into my editor, but I'm about to start working on book three. And, and every time I swear, I'm like, I'm not going to wreck my health again in this process. And every time I do, but this time is going to be different.
2: Do you have a, a go to activity to get the juices flowing when you sort of run up against uh, some writer's block or you, you just need some ideas, you just need to kind of get up and get out of your head? Is there something that you, you do on a
5: regular basis? You know, uh, like, I mean, it it doesn't sound super exciting, but I just walk, you know, I'll just Mm -hmm. get out and walk in my neighborhood if I'm at home or, you know, if I really have some time, which I never do, there's a little, you know, hiking spot that I like to go hike around. But I find as a writer walking, I don't know what it is. It's there's a magic to it. And it just sort of frees the brain a little bit. And so I I do like doing uh, just getting out walking and just getting clear in my head, getting some
2: fresh air. Well, Downrange, your debut novel introduces introduces us to Garrett Cole, uh, and I was fascinated to learn that Garrett did not start at the center of this book. He he was one of the side characters, but he got called up to the big leagues.
5: Yeah, so Garrett, uh, that was kind of an interesting deal. Garrett stole the show. Uh, it was really my my agent, but he's the one that really recognized this at first. I was always kind of secretly. Um, waiting for someone to say that. I could kind of feel mm-hmm. it as the writer that he was sort of stealing the show a little bit. But but I didn't really know what to do with that. I mean, that's the problem. Um, you know, I, I was writing what I knew. I was a CIA guy, so I was writing about CIA and intel and all that. And, you know, Garrett was more of a law enforcement guy. And I just, that wasn't my background. I'd done counter-narcotic stuff with the military, but, you know, as a... Um, More on the intelligence side of things, what I call the thirty thousand foot view, you know, and um, and so I wasn't the you know the guy busting down the door making arrests, but yeah, he kind of stole the show, and and he's the one that really stood out, and he got his own series, so good for him, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the characters they'll do what they want to do no matter what we try to force them into, won't they?
5: (laughs) They really do, and that's the. It was freeing, it was liberating for me as a writer to write him. Because I was, uh, you know, doing the, a CIA guy, there were these sort of like boundaries and these confines that I had that kind of knowing how it really was, I was trying to fit into that. And it wasn't very freeing, honestly. It was kind of like putting me in constraints. And when I write, started writing someone from a different sort of walk of life, if you will, like from, you know, the law enforcement perspective, it freed me up to write him a little bit how I wanted him to do and not how I thought he should be. And so that was yeah. really nice. And But I kept that CIA world because, you know, Garrett, as you, you know, if you've read the book and read the series, you'll see he's, he's a law enforcement, black and white, you know, law and order guy operating in the gray world of the CIA. So I keep mm-hmm. that world and I keep that world that I knew um so to me that was the fun so you know for readers that are going to read this you're still going to get that cia feel but you're going to get it from this guy trying to navigate through that world that isn't black and white that isn't always law and order that is a little bit gray and i think that's what makes it fun
2: yeah yeah definitely i it, it was an interesting perspective to kind of come at it for from the side i mean garrett is it seemed to me like he he would always prefer just to kind of be the lone wolf He he just he just wants to be out there doing his own thing but yeah having to work within a big government bureaucracy, uh, not his comfort zone.
5: <laughs> no, not his comfort zone. He likes to be out on his own, do, do, you know, kind of on his own rules a, a little bit, you know, because that's what he understands. He, he knows, you know, kill or be killed and all that kind of thing. But nope, when you get into to that big world of, of government bureaucracy and, um, you know, agencies trying to come together to work for the common good, um, it can get tricky. In reality, they come together in very different ways and that creates conflict uh bad if you really have to live in this world great if you're a writer like me because that's nothing but pure gold when it comes to to writing you know it's it's, it's, it's built-in conflict and uh and it's great
2: now when he moved up into that main character role as you're starting a series was there any worry that uh, since he wasn't originally conceived to be the one who's going to carry a whole series was there any worry that he he might not have the legs to to go a long way or once you started writing him was it clear like oh yeah no this this is a guy who can go for several books
5: yeah, that there was a lot of worry, and so that that's kind of one of the funny stories. And I um, got a really uh, wonderful agent, John Talbot, and you know, because no writer ever wants to hear, "Why don't you scrap this book you've rewritten several times and, and get rid <laughs> of that series and start an entirely new one?" Uh, so yeah. you know, I, I always kind of joke. I said, you know, it was probably like two in the afternoon. We had this conversation. I was like, I was like, "Oh, John, let me go get my scotch," and you know, being the the good agent concerned about my health, he's like, "Yeah, go get your scotch. Do what you got to do. Just start writing, man. You know." And And, uh, so, so, but, but he was, no, he was honestly very nice and said, well, see what you can do, see what you can do. Like I said, let me, let me give it a little time. And so I think I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning, the next day, couldn't sleep and started writing. And it was a chapter that's probably about 50 pages into the book. and, And it was like the best chapter I'd ever written. Now, if, if I were to ever get in trouble, like if,
2: if the shit really went down, who do I call to get me out of a mess? You have the background. I feel like I, I could give you a call or should I call Garrett?
5: <laughs> you know, I think I, I think my go-to would say call Garrett, man. He seems to get himself <laughs> out of the worst, <laughs> worst trouble than I ever could. Uh, yeah. Whether it be, you know, from the bureaucratic standpoint, uh, from his, you know, bosses uh, that were mad at him to, to some of the thickest you know uh life and death situations he he manages to get out so i trust him he always seems to get out of things but better than i could
2: Do you ever get into a scene and you write something and you feel like I don't know am I am I making him a little too super heroic? Do you ever have to like call somebody and say, Hey, could somebody actually pull off a shot like this or yeah. get out of a situation like that?
5: Yeah, I do. I do it all the time, and that's the great news about you know um, having the background that I do. I have access to a lot of those really fun, cool people. So I'm you know friends with former seals, Green Berets, former law enforcement. Uh, and in fact, even last night I was talking, I've got, you know, there's a lot of helicopter stuff. And so I'm friends with a, uh, a guy that was in the 160th, you know, the Night Stalkers, which is a special operations air wing for, for our, our military. And then last night I was even talking to a friend of mine who's a fire rescue guy and, and even trains military oh. how to shoot from a helicopter. And it's you know, that, these are people that are oh, wow. friends of mine. So, you no, know, I lean upon them heavily all the time. And 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 there's a line I always use that's kind of funny. I always say, "Don't tell me if you should do this, but rather, could you do this?" You know, because there's, <laughs> there's the, the good idea that you would probably never want to do this in a helicopter or you know, you know, shooting lot, whatever it is. You know, you probably would never want to do that, but could you do it? So yeah, I push boundaries, yeah. and, and and these guys know that I push boundaries, and so they're like. Yeah, you'd never want to do this in a helicopter, but you could do it. You know, in like a life or death thing, if you had to do this uh, thing, you could do it, and here's how it would work. And So I try to get it pretty accurate, um, but I want to make it fun. I mean, it's, it's meant to be pure fun, pure adrenaline, pure joy, but it's all legitimate.
2: Finally in our end of summer spectacular is Tessa Lunny, all the way from Australia. Her second Kiki Button mystery, Autumn Leaves 1922, takes Kiki back to Paris in the 1920s and of course gets Kiki involved in more mystery. This series steeps us all in this romantic and storied period of history and always has a great mystery at the heart of it all. Tessa, Kiki Button is back after April in Paris 1921. Kiki's back in Paris a year later. Now she is an Australian expat. She is a spy, a detective. She mingles with the famous and the glamorous and she never says no to a glass of champagne. I know we just met, but this sounds basically just like you, right?
4: (laughs) Well, my friends have said that she is my doppelganger, uh-huh. but I like to think of Kiki as the woman I would have liked to have been had I lived in 1920s Paris. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, and uh, just before we, we were rolling here, we, we were talking about your a, a very strange process that you had in this book. Uh, you have apparently a large collection of uh, vintage ephemera from that era to put you in the mood. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is this is a, a long time obsession, I'm assuming of the. The clothes, the fashion, the the accoutrement of, of that era, but you, you have a different shoes for different scenes that you write?
4: Well, I do. I do. <laughs> so sometimes to get in the mood, especially when I can't quite put myself uh, in the place at the right time, I'll put on a pair of shoes and then put on some French, you know, chanson music and then put the shoes in the scene. And that's how I begin. So at the moment, I'm wearing Kiki's favorite red brogues that I've written all through the book while we do this interview so I can be properly channeling Kiki in 1920s Paris when my kids are upstairs watching television and it's the middle of lockdown in Sydney and it's winter and a lot of other things are happening that have nothing to do with 1920s Paris, but I'm in the shoes.
2: That's fascinating. Well, Paris in the 1920s, it's such a romanticized Time. And it's such a nice escape from the crazy world that we're living in now uh, on the page, and I would imagine to write as well. But I mean, the things weren't quite so simple and romantic uh, back then as maybe we portray them nowadays, 100 years later, are they?
4: They were and they weren't. So there were a lot of parties. And If you've just watched the Ken Burns-Hemingway documentary, a lot of people headed to Paris after the war in the 1920s who then went on to become famous modernists, and some who were already famous, like Pablo Picasso, and then some people like Hemingway who went on to become very famous. So... Little, the little expat community around Montparnasse was as glamorous as that. And it did have a lot of, say, Russian aristocrats and German aristocrats and English aristocrats joining in with the movie stars and the soon-to-be-famous artists. But underneath that, this was a Europe that had just been through a most terrible war and the war had led to the collapse of what had seemed to be immovable empires such as the Austro-Hungarian Empire just completely disappeared and right. the German Empire was broken as well there'd been the Russian revolution just 5 years before when i uh, wrote the book and they'd just finished the most horrible civil war and things were still very unsettled and very uneasy the ottoman empire had just broken and so People were living in a political world that was brand new and anything seemed possible which was both fabulous and exciting and absolutely terrifying. And even if it's something fabulous like women in Britain or certain groups of women in Britain were allowed to vote, after 1919, it mm. meant a huge change, and so you put the terrible war and all of the death and grief from that, and the very long recovery, and the revolutions, and overlay that with the party. You get this explosive time. So it is immensely glamorous from a hundred years later when we don't have to live with the uncertainty. <laughs> uh, but I think if you're in the time, it would it would pull you in both ways.
2: Yeah, well, like you said, Kiki sort of hobnobs with the the intellectuals in Paris during this story time and people like you mentioned who show up in the, in the books in in both books at like Hemingway, Picasso, uh, Chanel in, in this new book. I wanna know like, when you're writing these real life people, were you concerned about you know getting the character right? Did you research how they were, how they behaved, how they talked or their characters in your book and you're going to make them do what you want them to do and say?
4: A little bit of both. So my attitude has always been, been, it needs to be possible, even if it isn't necessarily plausible. Mm -hmm. So the famous people in my books are just cameos. They're sketches who provide a bit of fun or push the plot forward. They don't carry the emotional weight of the story. So in that sense, I feel that I, I don't need to be as precise with their movements and their characterization as if they were the main character or one of the main characters that said i don't want to be completely outrageous and you know bring people back from the dead or have people on one continent when they were really on another continent so i do do my research and say who was there at that time Ah, hemingway really was and build it up that way and i do do a lot of research because it can be quite difficult sometimes to imagine yourself hundred years ago and so yeah. I'm, I'm always doing research about the details and and some of them I twinge I've made Kiki's dresses a little bit shorter than perhaps was the fashion <laughs> because I wanted to be a bit fashion forward a bit forward thinking a bit out there and bohemian rather than perfectly fashionable um, right. but generally I like to stick to the the rough truth I guess is what I guess.
2: <laughs> that's the best we can do as fiction writers right
4: we've got to have some license to play
2: Exactly. Yeah. In a time before everything in the world was recorded and documented. Yeah. You've you've got to have a little bit of creative license.
4: Exactly. And one of the reasons I wrote the first book was because, as you said, this is a long time obsession, this period. And I'd read so many histories and I'd read a few memoirs. But I always felt that I was sort of looking in the window at a party that was happening inside. And I could (laughs) never get in and I was never invited in as I looked through the windows of this history. So I wanted to join the party. So I wrote a book in the first person, with a blonde Australian like myself, so I could walk in through the door of the Café de la Rotonde and join in.
2: Oh, well, that yeah, that's uh, what better way to, to, than with your imagination? If you as, until we invent time machines, if, if fiction is the <laughs> best, best thing we have, right? Well I mean historical fiction has, has always fascinated me for the reasons that, that you're talking about is is the research it requires so much more research than, than something contemporary I know when I've done it my my first two published novels were set in the night, late 30s and early 40s and yeah you do like you, you want to get it right but then you want to not be hemmed in by that and I'm always fascinated with someone like Kiki who has to do these investigations and she's doing this sort of this covert spy work that world is completely different now, a hundred years later. So on the one hand, it's gotta be a little frustrating and you feel like you're hemmed in, but there's no cell phones, there's no internet, there's no satellites, any of these kind of spy craft stuff. But then at the same time, was it, did it ever box you in or, or was it kind of liberating not to have to worry about all the technology, which is its own kind of research, I guess too. <laughs>
4: Well, I'm not, I'm not a spy, believe it or not. So I actually don't know what current spies do. I would still need to research if I set it today. In some ways, it makes it easier in terms of the spy craft because it's known. People have written about mm. it and it's not confidential anymore. A hundred years later, they sent a telegram. Okay, well, you know, we can go and read those telegrams that they sent. Uh, they're all public knowledge. And so that makes it pretty straightforward. And if you, you know, if you read a lot of crime, you know, you start to you start to know also the tropes of the crime genre and the spy fiction genre, and what works and what doesn't work. And when you're writing, or when I'm writing, I'm also writing to other other readers like myself who read in this area. So I don't I don't feel boxed in. I guess the the boxing in is is within my imagination only. The limits of my imagination is the limit of the box, which sometimes can be a, a little smaller than I would like. But, uh, <laughs> Sometimes I can feel frustrated if I don't know how to find the information that I need to find, especially if it's for a small detail that's not important to the plot. I just like it to be right, but I don't know where to find the bit of information, and I'm Googling for, you know, an hour, then another day, another hour, and another hour, another edit, and more Googling, and I just sometimes I have to go, all right, I'm just going to make it up. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> that that can be a bit frustrating to just go. Oh, someone knows. I know someone in the world knows, but who? Who can I ask about this tiny detail that's not important? Ah, yeah.
2: The the draw of of this era in in Paris in the twenties is it sparked a, a lot of people's imaginations over the years. But I mean, when you're setting out to to write a novel and, and to start a new series. Did you immediately look around you in Australia and think, oh, there's nothing interesting enough here? I, I need to go both back in time and to a different continent.
4: <laughs> well, there's a lot of excellent contemporary Australian crime fiction yes. and spy fiction. Definitely. I was when I first started out, it was though it was because I couldn't find or I didn't know how to find what I wanted. Again, this problem of research. I didn't know how to find what I wanted. And also what I wanted was something different than what was currently fashionable. There was a lot of sexual violence and rape as a plot point. And I was pregnant and breastfeeding my small daughter when I first started out. I didn't want to read a lot about rape and dead girls. Yeah, And <laughs> and there's often uh, serial killers are a big thing and are very fashionable. I found that difficult after, you know, one serial killer, then the next book, another one, next book, another one. I'm like, okay, I, I've had enough. And I love the 1920s and... There was a lot going on in my life, and so I wanted a place where I knew and felt happy and comfortable but at the same time addressed some of the problems that I saw in the world, such as the rise of different and more radical politics, Mm -hmm. such as a world that felt constantly in flux that was both exciting and also terrifying. And so that's what pushed me to write the book, the place that I wanted you know, to go to the 1920s but also to look slantwise at some of the issues in the contemporary world.
2: Job well done. I, I say, I mean, these are it, it's in a way it's a little disconcerting to read these books and to think, oh, yeah, that's it is a century ago. It doesn't feel that long ago. A lot I of these themes and, and a lot of the, the, the things that you put in there. But yeah, you when now that we're here and oh, my gosh, 2021, you're like, oh, no, that was 100 years. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow.
4: Yeah it feels it feels still very modern and certainly the when you look at the art that came out of that time feels very very sharp and very cutting and when you look at some of the politics like the rise of not so much the rise of communism but the rise of fanatical ideology and mm-hmm. this is in different forms in different ways this is still Something that we're dealing with. How do we live with fanatics, and what do they do within the modern world? Yeah, it doesn't feel very long, very far away. The attitudes towards women, though, they feel very, very far away. They, <laughs> they feel like they were a long. A good time. thing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. <laughs>
2: Uh, excellent. Well, Tessa, this has been a pleasure. You uh, you have kept the streak going. I have enjoyed every single Australian author I have talked to and that I have met. Uh, so uh, you guys are doing something right down there. Uh, one you. of these days, I'm I'm going to get on a plane and, and I'm going to land at your doorstep. I, I have <laughs> a lot of people to go visit when I when I finally make it down there.
4: <laughs> You're very welcome. I'd love to show you around.
2: thanks so much for sticking around for the whole show. I will be back again soon with even more great authors for you. I won't wear out my welcome. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.